We are in Psalm 49 this evening. As we turn there Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, as we turn there, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles in case you don't have a Bible. Just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, as we cover a little bit of territory in the Scriptures on Sunday night, it's easiest to learn and to follow and understand by not only hearing the Word but also by reading it for yourself. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible as a gift from the Lord uh, this evening. Psalm 49 is a meditation on the folly of trusting in riches. And so, always a good reminder, uh, we know that Lennon and McCartney told us that they didn't care too much for money because money couldn't buy them love. Well, that's good as far as it goes, but there's a lot of other things that money can't do, and uh, it's kind of a theme all the way through history, really, the limitations of money and how to gauge uh, what is our true riches from the vantage point of heaven, and the Psalm 49 uh, brings that out. The psalmist writes, and he says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear all inhabitants of the world. And so whatever this message is that he's about to unfold to us is very important, and it has application to everyone in the whole wide world. And so, all right, he's got attention. I mean, if you were to start a conversation with somebody and they, and they said, all right, the whole world needs to listen to what I'm about to say. You say, well, okay, this is new. I don't really deal with this in daily conversation. So something spectacular uh, either is going to come forth and be fabulous or you've built up my expectations so highly that if, it, if it's anything less than spectacular, I'm going to poke you in the eye. But in Psalm 49, of course, what follows is spectacular. So he calls on all people, peoples, all inhabitants of the world to listen to what he has to say, both low and high, rich and poor together. And he's going to talk about true riches. Sometimes, again, we've talked about it a couple weeks ago, a little bit about um, you know, it's certainly a, a big deal in our current uh, presidential campaign, but it's, this kind of thing has gone on forever and ever, where you have the pitting of the rich against the poor and the poor against the rich and the uh, stereotyping of both groups of people as if all rich people are exactly the same, as if they all share the same moral base or came by their riches the same way or used their riches in the same way or as if all poor people are virtuous and noble by virtue of being uh, poor. And so you've got these kind of these broad brushes that are being made and there's a, a lot more to it than just being rich and poor. And here is a lesson that the psalmist writes and says, everybody needs to hear that whether they're rich or whether they're poor. And he's going to be talking a little bit about money, and sometimes it's good for us to realize, sometimes we think about covetousness, the ungodly desire for more. He says, oh, those rich people, they got that ungodly desire for more. You can be dirt poor, only have 50 cents to your whole na- your, your entire estate is the 50 cents in your pocket, and you can be more dominated by covetousness than the richest person in the whole wide world. A, per- a poor person can look to money 
as being the answer to all of their problems or the source of ultimate fulfillment in life in a way that even a, a, uh, many rich people don't look at it in that way. So it's a message that all of us need to hear, and that's what the psalmist is saying. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. And that's just a very poetic way. This is the, these are poems. They are worship songs, and so there is an artistic side to it. And it's, the way that it's a way of the psalmist saying that the truth that he's about to reveal uh, is, uh, it, it can be uh, it will yield its greatest um, insight and voice to the person who is willing to make a little effort to understand what it is that he's saying. Of course, that's true of all the Word of God. Uh, the more we go into the Word of God, deeper into the Word of God, make that a priority, make that an effort, it's to that person that the Word of God just continues to yield its beauty, its depth, its revelation of God. And so this is, this is the way, what he's saying there in verse 4. And he begins to talk about what money can't buy. He said, why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity uh, at, my, at my heels surrounds me? And when he talks about in the days of evil, he's talking about a time in the land where evil people are ruling. And it's, in, in this case, it's it, people who are very wealthy, very powerful, and they are uh, using that influence for evil in the nation of Israel. And he tells us here that we shouldn't fear when evil uh, 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 begin to use their, use their wealth in a powerful way like that for the simple reason that, that they won't be around for very long. I mean, you look, at, you look at the realms of evil. Think about drug cartels. Think about organized crime. Think about anything you want to think about all the way down to drug trades or burglaries or crime or any of these kind of things. And so people, get a, they get a hold of money one day. They've got it in their hands, but they're surrounded by a group of other people who are now trying to get that money out of their hands by manipulating the lusts of their flesh they, they manipulated a person's uh, lust of their flesh for drugs, separated them from the money. They get the money. They think they're going to hold on to it, but they don't realize in the same way that they targeted that person, someone's not targeting the weakness of their flesh, so the money goes out and it goes around and around and around. You cannot build a lasting empire or a lasting anything upon evil. And so they come and they go, he says. And so it's just like hold your breath. Uh, they, they're on the scene. They have this power, but there's no future uh, in, in, uh, in, in evil and, uh, because their time of, of influence is very short-lived. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother. And uh, so you can't, one thing that money can't do is we can't use money to uh, lengthen the life of a loved one who is dying. So the, the, the powerlessness of money in the face of death. If you had a way of universally expanding people's lives one month longer, than what their life would normally be, 
you would probably possess all of the wealth of the world inside of a year, certainly in, in, inside of a generation. Because when death comes, people are willing, they don't know the Lord, they're willing to do anything to escape it and to extend life. So they would give the money uh, to do that, and you see how often that happens, and it makes people vulnerable to quacks and all of this kind of stuff. But the thing, one thing about money is the recognition that it cannot uh, save a loved one from death, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. And then he says that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. No amount of money can buy the salvation of a loved, a loved one. So there's no purgatory or anything like that, buying people out of some kind of interstate once they're, they're dead. But money has no ability to secure everlasting life for ourselves or everlasting life uh, for the person uh, that we love most in life. And then he says in verse 10, for he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person uh, perish. In other words, we can't, we can't use money uh, to escape our own death. And, the, and the, a lot in the book of Proverbs about the fact, how does a wise man die the same as a fool? <laughs> Everybody dies. <laughs> yeah, but what was your score on the SAT? doesn't matter. We're both going to die the same. And, and so the fact that money is powerless in the face of death, and so it is. And then he goes on to say, and they leave their wealth to others. In other words, you can't take your money with you. We mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, two guys that were watching a hearse drive by of somebody that they knew in the neighborhood. The one guy said to the other, he said, how much did he leave? All of it. And that's what happens. All of this wealth that is accumulated in this life, we will not take one single penny out of this life and into eternity. So that's a, that's a very strong restriction on wealth. And, and so it, we don't carry any of it into the next life. Our, the only wealth that we will carry into the next life apart from salvation in Christ, the only wealth we will carry out of here in, into the future is the godly character that God has developed into our lives, that preparation for heaven. That's what we're going, that's what's important. That's true riches, and God knows that to be true. That's what we'll carry out of here. We're not going to take one nickel out of this place with us. And that's why Jesus said, in terms of being rich in eternity, you don't do it by, I mean, how can you write out the will and everything, ship it to um, St. Peter's Square, uh, heavenly circle up in, and can't, you know, none of that can happen. So Jesus spoke of the fact in terms of the wise use of money, and that is not to lay up treasure here on earth, but to lay it up in heaven. In other words, to use our resources for the things of God, for kingdom purposes, and in that way, we are sending money ahead. And that's the only way it translates out of current. That's the way, when we talk about currency, we're talking about something that is current in our culture. 
So in order to take money that is in this world that is not a currency of heaven and to take it into and, and do the exchange and somehow have that turn into something that's valuable in heaven, that money has to go toward kingdom work and, and the things of the Lord. And so that's how we send uh, money ahead. I remember hearing an old story about illustration about this. These, uh, one guy got into heaven fabulously wealthy in this world. Then a Christian, he got into heaven, smelt a little of smoke, though. Barely got in. Barely out of escaped the flames of hell. So he thought by virtue of the fact that he had been a wealthy man in the world that, that he was going to get into heaven and is going to have this mansion up here that he'd been hearing about and all of that. So St. Peter starts to walk him through heaven. So as you can tell, this is a very, very realistic story. So St. Peter starts to walk him through kind of the high-rent district of heaven. There's these beautiful mansions, like these southern mansions and the great pillars and the Corinthian columns and the whole, everything is, all right, I'm home. Here's my place. And they walked right through that neighborhood to the next one. Well, you know, it wasn't as good as the first one, but, you know, still livable, passable. So they are going through there, and he's just waiting for St. Peter to pick out his, show him his house and all that, and then pretty soon they're moving down in this and in one neighborhood after another, and now they just got these shacks and lean-tos, and he showed them the house that he was going to have for eternity. And, and the guy began to complain, and St. Peter said, listen, we did the best we could with what you sent ahead. <laughs> And uh, so it'll be a completely different situation in terms of wealth uh, once we get uh, into heaven. He said their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. And this is one of the seductions of wealth is the idea that I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I have influence, and that that's going to go on uh, forever and uh, it won't necessarily do that. Their dwelling places, uh, they believe that their dwelling places are going to last unto all generations. Their homes will remain in the family, past family to family member and down the generations and all of that. They call their lands after their own name, you know, the Kyle Ranch and 6,000 acres in Wyoming and whatever. And um, so this is how they're, they're trying to build a legacy in life on the basis of material wealth. And, and the writer uh, uh, speaks and says, nevertheless man, though in honor does not remain, he is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. And the fact of the matter is, is that pe uh, you, you can take and uh, uh, live such a life, use your money, manipulate the use of money uh, po politically or to get influence, and then they name a park after me, they name a main street after me, they name a what after me, this kind of, of a thing. And, and then what happens is that ultimately we die, and if our, if our life, the wealth in our life was not spent coupled with godly character. In other words, if our, life, if our character is not something that people respect and our name is good long after we die, then of course they're going to name the park after us or anything, they, anything that Bill Gates wants to have named after him. They're going to name it after him because everybody wants the money. No reflection on Bill Gates. He just happens to be a great illustration of a wealthy person. 
But if a person has that kind of wealth, people will say and do and name and all that kind of thing. But if it's not coupled with a, a godly life, righteousness, good character, the moment you die, they rename that park because the name is no good. So the way to gain a lasting legacy and in, in life is through godly character. It is not through money alone. You can use money for that, but it is godly character that makes the remembrance of us to people long after we're gone something that's kind of golden in their ear. I think about Stephen in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, this great early deacon in the church, and he preached this sermon to the religious leaders, and they became so infuriated with him, they began to gnash at him with their teeth, and they stoned him to death. And he cried out to the Lord, and he saw the Lord as he's leaving this body to go into heaven. And the Lord said, you know, he would come and take us into heaven, that where he is, uh, there we may be also. He's faithful to that. And, and uh, so that was happening, and then Stephen died. And it says that the noble men in Israel, the most religious, the most godly character of people in, in Israel, or of Christians, they mourn the death of Stephen. So it doesn't matter how much money he had or didn't have, he had the good name, and that's true riches in life. Without that, money means absolutely nothing. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me, say la. And so uh, uh, death, once, and that's the, the psalmist is saying, is that once we die, we're no longer going to be separated by these categories of rich and, and of, of poor. The separation kind of in heaven is on the basis of our relationship with God, whether we had one with God or we didn't have one. In verse 15, the psalmist is saying, I have a relationship with God. That's what outlives this life in a meaningful way. He said, do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house uh, is increased, and so telling us not to be afraid of the prosperity of the wicked uh, wealthy, for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away, separated from his wealth. The moment that he dies, his glory shall not descend after him, and though while he lives, he blesses himself, for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. It's kind of like the whole Elvis effect. Once you become famous or you become wealthy, now how, do you, now how do you know who your real friends are? Who likes you for ugly old you or simple old you? That's why all these people, they get wealthy, they get famous and all, and they keep like their six friends from high school that liked them before they became this. And they had a relationship that was honest. Now everything gets complicated with money and uh, so, uh, who isn't going to praise you when you do well for yourself? And he shall go to the generation of his fathers, and they shall never see light. And so, all of the self, all the self-praise that a person can heap upon himself because of his wealth, or the, the praise that people uh, heap upon a rich person, all of that, if it isn't coupled with a faith in Christ and a, and a godly life, it will just disappear 
with that person's life because it, is, it isn't founded in anything uh, substantial or meaningful. A man who is in honor uh, yet does not understand is like the beasts that uh, perishes. And so he's saying basically the person that does not understand these things about the limitations of wealth and how wealth is truly to be uh, esteemed or valued, uh, it, then that person that doesn't understand this, uh, he's saying, is, is just like an animal that dies. I mean, they die with no real understanding of what is um, meaningful, what is uh, truly uh, valuable. Uh, psalm 50 is a psalm in which uh, Asaph, it's another psalm of Asaph. Uh, Asaph was one of the kind of leaders of the worship for uh, the children of Israel. And Asaph warns here of coming judgment. So we had, when I was growing up, there was a comedian that was on television, and he, one of his lines was, here comes the judge. <laughs> so we just think about that related to this psalm. Here comes the judge. And that's kind of what this psalm is talking about. But the interesting thing about the psalm is we tend to think of, okay, here comes the judge, and boy, I'm saved, and so... Uh, I'm okay, and that God only comes to judge or to spank those that don't know the Lord. He doesn't, you know, he'll never judge Christians. But he doesn't judge us in terms of eternity. That's secured because of our faith in Christ. But he can judge his people. And he's coming as a judge in Psalm 50 to judge his people. Peter writes and he says, judgment begins in the house of God. And if it begins in the house of God, the idea is how much more will his judgment be in the world? So he, God judges his people. He judges, he watches, he watches this church. He looks at it. Does this glorify him? Does this represent his heart and his word? Not just out here in the open when, when it's, somebody could put on a show, but is there integrity behind the scenes and these kind of things? He's always judging and assessing. One of the things that talks about God in the Bible kind of with eyes of fire, and fire is a symbol of, of judgment, and eyes means that he's, he, he is judging what he is seeing even among God's people. And so this is a psalm of judgment, and he is going to uh, speak of his judgment coming uh, upon two kinds of religious uh, sinners. And so he said, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. So he's got his kind of a court uh, setting. He's going to be the judge, and he calls all of the people in the whole wide world to come to this setting, figuratively speaking. In other words, everybody that reads this psalm ought to be in that audience and listen to how God is going to judge. And so he calls everybody in the world to come and watch him judge his people, which tells us something very important. And what it tells us is that whatever he is judging here among his people is super important to him. So it's just like he's saying, I want the whole world to know that even if and when my people misrepresent me, 
that this is important to me in terms of them understanding that there oftentimes there's a great difference between how I'm represented in the world and what is really important to me. And so we, he's, got, he's got all of us all ears here with, okay, this is super important to God, and so it's super important to me. He said, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. In other words, this great trial is going to take place and be cited there in Jerusalem. Our God shall come, so God is coming to judge. He shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be a very uh, tempestuous all around him. And so uh, this, I, he's coming to judge. There's this great kind of fire that's going on around him, very appropriate, related to him coming as a judge because fire is an instrument of judgment or refinement. So fire, you apply it to something that is valuable, like a valuable metal, and it will purify that metal. Uh, you apply it to something that's worthless, like chaff, and it will burn chaff away. So God can apply the fire of His holiness to a church, to an individual life, and always what it will do is burn away what is worthless in our life, and then what is good in our life, it will further purify it. So God is wanting to purify His people of two particular things that are deeply uh, troubling to Him. Boy, and I hope none of you are guilty of these two. This buildup is something. I mean, we may see people just killed here tonight in church, just like in the early church. And he shall call from heaven above to the earth that he may judge his people. So this is a judgment that is coming upon his people. He said, gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with, uh, with me by sacrifice. In other words, this is, again, it's, it's his people that he's gathering for judgment. Let the, the uh, heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is the judge. And so he's the one that's going to judge these two uh, kinds of religious sinners. And when God is the judge, we're dealing with someone who knows all of the facts. You don't have to go through like a six-month trial. Uh, bring this person. Okay, then the judge feels like he has all of the facts, and now he can deliberate. God doesn't need any of that kind of time. He knows all of the facts, like we saw this morning. Everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. There's, there's nothing that he, he doesn't know and that he doesn't see. And so this is his qualification, so to speak, uh, to be the judge. And, and now he deals with the first uh, sin of his people. He said, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. So he's upset about something, and it's not a small thing to him. And, and, and you might say, why in the world do you uh, build, build it up this way, that this is a big thing to God. I do that because a lot of times what is a big deal to God is no longer a big deal to us, even as Christians. Sometimes our Christianity is fashioned by the culture, even by religious culture. And so there needs to be that preparation of like, okay, wow, whatever this is, I'm all ears. I do not want to be guilty of whatever is troubling God in this way. And God said, 
I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. They were very faithful to bring the continual burnt offerings before the Lord under the law of Moses. A burnt offering was to be given to God to begin the day and to end the day. They were faithful, absolutely uh, unfailingly faithful in keeping the letter of the law of Moses. So there's no, we're not talking about a disobedience problem with this uh, first group of people. They were meticulous in the, in the keeping of the Word of God. And then he says, I will not take a bull from your house nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all of its fullness while I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the uh, blood of goats. And so what his problem is, is with this first group of religious people is that they were doing all of the right things, but there was no heart connection with God. So it was just mindless ritual emotionless ritual. Obedient to God, again, unfailingly so, but no heart behind it, no thinking behind it. In other words, they were doing it just going through the motions, but there was, there was nothing of a relationship with God. And, and, and so this is what their… this is what kind of Old Testament Christianity had been reduced to. You do these certain things, you come to church a, a, a certain number of times a week, you read certain chapters out of the Bible, you pray for so much time, you knock these things out, and then you just get on about your business and a person just compartmentalizes, does all of those things, feels nothing toward God, knows, does nothing in terms of their mind, this, in terms of their mind being engaged in a relationship with God. They're just going through the rituals, and there's no connection at all uh, with God. And basically, the Lord is informing them that He did not set up the sacrificial system because He needed a meal. He didn't set up the sacrificial system un under Moses because He needed anything from His, his people. It was his way to, he gave it as his way for his people to express their love and their thanksgiving to him for how good he had been to them. In other words, all of the offering of the sacrifices were to be an expression of a thanks-filled relationship with God, and they were just going through the religious motions, no thought toward God, no emotion concerning God. And it reminds us, in terms of the New Testament equivalent, is in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus. It was the very first of the seven churches that He wrote to. He wrote to that church and He commended them, just like He commended these people. I mean, you guys, you folks, you, I mean, morning and night, morning and night, morning and night, you offer those sacrifices. I mean, you never miss it. But what you're missing is the whole thing was established in order to grow in a relationship with me. 
I didn't save you and make you my people so you can sacrifice bulls twice a day. I saved you for a relationship with me. And, and they'd forgotten about the relationship. The church of Ephesus, Jesus spoke to them and said, wow, you, you guys search out the people that are teaching false doctrine and you take care of business with them. You don't let them have any kind of a place in the church. You guys labor and serve me to the point of, of exhaustion. And he begins to commend them for all the amazing things, Revelation 2, that the church of Ephesus was and that they were doing. I mean, you read it and you go, wow, when are they going to have a vacancy for the pastor in that church so we can all go candidate for it? It's amazing what he commends them for. Same thing as here. And then he says this word. He says, nevertheless. He says, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. He said, remember, therefore, from whence you fall and repent, do your first works, or else I'll come to you quickly. Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Because at all those things that you're doing, keeping out all the false teachers, all the hard work that you're doing, all the service, all the missions, all the this, all the everything that you guys, he got going on. He said, it doesn't mean anything to me apart from the relationship. God did not create us, or he did not save us supremely because he wanted a cheap labor force. That's not it at all. He saved us in order to have a relationship with us. That's what's the most meaningful thing to him. And as marvelous and wonderful as it is to be able to serve the Lord, and it is a marvelous thing, that is not the greatest wow event that's possible on planet Earth. The greatest wow event in a human life is that we have one opportunity this side of heaven to grow deep in a relationship with God. And if I miss that, I have missed everything. It is all about the relationship to God. And then, yes, let the service come forth, the faithfulness come forth, but out of the relationship, not in, in, uh, instead of the relationship. I remember in kind of a little spiritual journey of my mother, less so mine, but I remember being in Roman Catholicism for a little time as a boy, and I'd go in there on Saturday and I'd say all of my sins and uh, leave a few out and, and then maybe add a couple of others that I thought would weigh out but would protect my privacy. A lot of games go on in that little booth, tell, let me tell you, those of you who know. So, and then they tell me this many, our fathers, this many Hail Marys, and uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I could compare notes with you afterwards for how many I got versus you got. Is there like a... Uh, and I'm not poking fun at it. I'm just starting to, I'm thinking about it at the moment. I've never given any thought whether there's like a criteria for a, a lie as so many of this or that or whatever it might be. But anyway, they gave me my load of them. I could have half of my Hail Marys and Our Fathers said by the time I closed the door and got to the altar. 
not because he didn't give me a lot of them to say, but because I could say them so mindlessly and so heartlessly, I could speak them like grease lightning and be done with it and out on the Saturday to finish out my day as a young boy. And sometimes things can reduce down like that, where people are just going through religious motion, and they've forgotten their relationship. You know, it was a, kind of the weirdest thing for me, and I don't want to say it from like a, an attitude of superiority or anything, but you ever run… I mean, you, we expect certain things when we run into people that don't know the Lord yet because we know what it is to not know the Lord and how much are they going to understand. But you run into somebody that says that they're a Christian. You say, you're a Christian? <laughs> Is God the greatest or what? Is this the greatest life a person can live? Is He amazing? And you just start to go on and on about God and everything, and they just look at you. I mean, the face is just stone, like they don't know the first thing about what you're saying. I baptize you in the name of the Holy Spirit right now and get you some fire in your bones here related to the… You just think, what in the world? What are you… Are you missing the relationship in this whole thing? And sometimes I feel sad. I mean, here's these great truths that ought to move a human heart into just immediate worship of the Lord, and it doesn't even cause the heart to tick up just a little bit on the EKG, spiritually speaking. So you wonder, is there a relationship in this thing, or are you just kind of plugging through the thou shalts and thou shalt nots mindlessly and, and without any kind of emotion in the relationship with the Lord? It's the relationship that's so important. I like the story. I, feel, I, was, I like the story so much I'm going to uh, share it tonight at, kind of at a risk because sometimes I forget when I shared things last. So if you share it too soon, people begin to wonder about you. He is getting older. He doesn't remember that he said that just three weeks ago. So maybe I did, and that's why I'm thinking about it. But Harry Ironside told a story in this vein that I, I really liked. And, and uh, he talked about a man who had lost his, his wife. He had one daughter left to him, and uh, he just, the, the joy of his life was to have that daughter with him. But being a very busy man, they could only spend their evenings together, and he would come home from work, and after dinner they'd spend several hours together, and then one of them would read and the other would listen, and they would uh, take turns related to that. She would play for him, sing for him, and he found his greatest joy and comfort in the company of that child. And it was getting toward the kind of the end of the year, and the daughter said to him one evening, she said, will you excuse me tonight? and I have something I need to do in my room. And the next night it was the same thing, and the next, and the next, and the next, much to his disappointment. But he ultimately kind of got used to it, and he didn't like to ask her what she was doing that had him, her leaving him alone. And then finally Christmas morning came, and she came into his room, and she cried out, Merry Christmas, Dad, and she handed him a pair of crocheted slippers that she had made for him. And, of course, he thanked her very much, but he said, I would have much rather have had you with me all of these lonely evenings than to have had these slippers as beautiful and comfortable as they are. And I think it's a great uh, picture 
in a way that we can understand of how much the relationship means to God above everything else. And so this is what he uh, speaks to them, and then he gives them his encouragement in all of this. He said to, the, to them, offer to God thanksgiving. Here's the solution to the condition that they're in. Offer to the Lord thanksgiving. Just begin to thank the Lord. And then pay your vows to the Most High God. Be obedient to God's Word. And then call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. In other words, pray to me. And so uh, uh, give me thanks. Notice what I'm doing. Let that translate into our relationship. Continue to obey me and then pray, let's talk, let's communicate, and that's the way to get back on track with the relationship. And then he deals with uh, the second, his rebuke of the second religious group in verse 16, but he said, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and you cast my words behind you? So he's dealing now with hypocrisy. Those that uh, talk the talk, but they don't walk the talk. So they knew all of the God talk. They knew enough about the Bible to hold on a conversation, all of that. So their words were right, but their life was not consistent with their words. And what would happen when they would hear the Word of God in whatever kind of environment, they would just take it and throw it behind their back. That's kind of, we would talk about littering, just treating something as worthless. And, and so this was their attitude toward the Word of God, and their condition was one of hypocrisy. And then he gives example of their hypocrisy. When you saw a thief, you consented with him. And so uh, theft, you have, become, you have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. In other words, engaging and lying. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So talking about slander. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought I, uh, that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. And so God is speaking to them about uh, their sin, and he, because again, he's the judge. He knows what's going on in their heart and their minds. What they had decided was they kind of took a step like this, kind of a half step out into disobedience. No lightning. So I got another half step. No lightning. <gasps> ah, all of God's commandments must be written for everybody else because I'm a special case. And when I engage in these sins, uh, God realizes I'm a superior kind of person. I can handle it and navigate it. And sin is no, this, these sins in my life, though they might be big in another person's life, they're no big deal in my life because God doesn't judge me. And that's a funny self-deception that all of us are prone to on one level or another, to think that because God doesn't wipe us out in an instant related to our sin or we engage in sin, make it a lifestyle sin that we're engaging in for a long period of time, pretty soon there's no conviction about it, pretty soon uh, we just think this is normal Christianity, and because God doesn't judge us immediately, 
we figure he's okay with it. And God makes very, very clear here that the reason he did not judge them immediately was not because he was okay with it, but because he was giving them space to repent of their sin. And that's a good thing to hear tonight. If there are any of us here tonight where you've wandered out into that kind of place of one, two, three areas of willful disobedience in your life, you've camped there in that place, and, you, and then you begin to think to yourself, this is okay with God. It isn't okay with God. You say, well, why does He judge me immediately? Because He's giving you space to repent, and that's how to interpret it, not that God has gone soft on disobedience as it relates uh, to our lives. He said, now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there is none to deliver. He said, whoever uh, offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. And so he says, you need to repent, otherwise judgment will come on you as fiercely and as quickly as a lion comes upon its prey. And, and then the encouragement, if they would return to obedience, then they would have a confidence in their relationship with the Lord in time of trouble that God will take care of them. And that's the kind of confidence that only one who is being obedient to the Lord uh, possesses. In Psalm 51, it's a beautiful psalm. It's a favorite, uh, one of my favorite psalms. It was written by King David, and it's one of the seven psalms of repentance of the 150 psalms. And David wrote this psalm following, uh, sometime following his uh, repentance after his sin against uh, the adultery against Bathsheba, and then compounding his sin by arranging the death of her uh, husband Uriah the Hittite in an attempt to cover up the sin. And so, this is his psalm uh, of, of repentance. And David was ultimately confronted by a prophet by the name of Nathan related uh, to his sin, and David did repent of his sin, and not only did he repent of his sin uh, and confess his sin, but really for the rest of his life he would deeply regret that chapter in his life. I'd like to say also, and I always think about it related to David, if you are in this room tonight and you have sinned and, and, in a so grievous a way, in the way that David uh, had, and, and again, I, I want to say too that sometimes we don't have to sin grievously. We can have a very tender conscience and a small sin can, uh, comparatively speaking, can wipe us out. But I, I, sometimes people put David in this kind of a dislike category because of that chapter in his life, and it's very unattractive and it's very unseemly. I will give you that. But I have so much respect for this man because he the easiest thing that it would have been after God busted him related to this sin would have just been uh, to go to China and become a tea trader. Just get out, never face people again, not take responsibility for all of the pain and the hardship that he had done and his, that his sin had caused, but he really just stepped up. He continued in God's call upon his life despite his failure in the hardest environment that, that he could possibly do, and that was to continue to assemble together with God's people. When the, when the coward's way or the easiest way would have been just to run, he, he stood and he took the consequences like a man, so to speak, 
And I have great respect for people that uh, when they or we hit that kind of a season, they don't run away and be, uh, find themselves in a cave for the rest of their life, but they continue to fellowship with God's people. They continue to grow in their relationship with the Lord, and they allow God to have the final say related to their life. We would not have Psalm 51 if David had not continued to be obedient to God on the other side of the shame of his failure. And we would be much less rich as Christians if we didn't have that, uh, this particular psalm. Now, the psalm is an interesting one because David tells us what he learned in that whole falling and the sin with uh, Bathsheba and the, and the killing of Uriah the Hittite. And he describes it in verses 16 and 17. He says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. And, and so what David learned from this season in his life was the importance of brokenness in the life of a child of God. Now, brokenness is a very, very interesting um, word and an interesting uh, concept or reality in, in the Christian life, this thing called brokenness. And it's been a source, it was for a long time, a very great source of frustration for me as a Christian because I would hear people speak, Christians, Bible teachers, authors, all kinds of people speak about brokenness in glowing terms, um, how much it meant to God uh, how valuable it was in the life of a Christian and it, for that person to be broken. So I knew it was a fabulous thing, but there were two things I didn't know. Number one, I didn't know what brokenness was. I couldn't get a satisfactory definition for brokenness. And number two, I couldn't get a practical description of brokenness. Yes, brokenness, 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 brokenness. But I'm telling you, I'm like a man that's dying of thirst saying, would you give me one hint as to what that looks like in the daily of life on planet Earth so I know what I'm aiming at? instead of just this big word that I can't get my mind around. And the beautiful thing about Psalm 51 is that David wrote it from a broken condition. And so Psalm 51 gives us, I think, the single greatest practical definition of brokenness in the entire Bible. He said, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. He said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desired truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities." 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. And then as we saw in verses 16 and 17, down to 18, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. And so what will brokenness look like practically in a child of God? And he lists some of the characteristics of that. And I just want to go through the, them very quickly and allow your rich preacher-like minds to fill in the blanks related to the truths. And he tells us essentially in verse 1 that brokenness brings us back to grace an appreciation for grace. God gives us the power of his Holy Spirit to live this godly life that we live. And sometimes it's so hard because we experience that power, we grow in obedience to the Word of God, and then it's so hard sometimes to fight the subtle kind of self-righteousness that can begin to build up a little bit, a sense of superiority or a sense of comparison. And then we begin to think in our relationship with God that He only blesses people who are good and always do good, and all these weird things can start to go on in our minds. And then one day it happens, maybe not as big as David, hopefully not, but the day comes where we take and we trip we stub our toe and we fall down and all of a sudden we're confronted with the fact that we're as great a sinner as we ever were. And God comes alongside of us and he doesn't say, all right, I'm through with you, that's ridiculous, you call yourself a Christian. He comes in and we're so ashamed of what we've done and he doesn't abandon us. He comes alongside us, he lifts us up, he dusts us off, he moves us forward, and we walk away from that once again appreciating the grace of God. Nothing is wasted that we learn something from, and I'm not advocating that we should go out and fall in order to appreciate God's grace. We will, we will fall short of perfection enough to do that. But that brokenness is, brokenness is always marked by a appreciation for the grace of God and the grace that He is showing in our lives on a daily basis, no matter how much we grow in Christ-likeness. And so it always wonderfully brings us back to uh, that, to grace, and that this is a grace-based relationship and that our God is a gracious, gracious God. And so brokenness, it keeps us close to grace. You notice in verse 2 that brokenness brings a fresh desire to live a pure, clean life. So a broken man or woman will not allow 
willfully allow areas of willful disobedience to exist in their life. If that's you tonight, then you are not a broken person. A person who is truly broken does not think they're smarter than God on any issues in life, but will look at His Word and say, this is what it says, and His word, He's the boss, His Word is the truth, and I'm going to do that. A sure sign that I have left a life of brokenness is that I have introduced willful disobedience uh, into my uh, life. Uh, there is, with brokenness, there'll always be a very quick conf a conviction of sin. Sometimes when, when we sin, we go, oh, ah, I did that again. And, and we're so, you know, upset about, about the whole thing. We think, what good can come out of this? How can God work this together for good? in my life. And one of the things that he can do is we can't change the fact that we've sinned and we need God's grace related to that sin, but one of the, the, uh, uh, the fact that God convicts us quickly of our sin is a sign of brokenness in our lives. Brokenness, the, the level of brokenness in a person's life is directly proportional to the time that elapses between the moment we commit the sin and we repent. And if that happens in five seconds or five minutes, that says a good thing about a person's brokenness. David didn't repent for a year. That's a long time for a Christian to be under conviction and not repent of his sin. And, and so he was not a broken person. So sometimes we look, what's the upside of what happened here? God convicted me immediately and I repented. That's the next best thing that I can do. Notice in verse 3 that brokenness brings a humility that can acknowledge wrongdoing. David said, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. There's a certain kind of person that can never admit they're wrong. You won't be a Christian very long with that attitude. But there's a certain kind of person that's very hard to admit that they are wrong. David was a man's man. I mean, it wasn't easy for him to pen this thing right here and, 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 and you know, confess it so openly the way that he did. Some people, they can never admit that they're wrong. And I mean, that's just got to be a, a crushing kind of pressure that that person lives under. And brokenness frees us of that. And the broken, the broken ability person, when they've sinned against somebody, they can turn to the person right away and say, you were right and I was wrong, and I ask for your forgiveness. And the length of time that elapses between the wrong and the ability to say that to the other person also speaks of our brokenness or lack of it. In verse 3, brokenness also produces a deep and healthy regret for our sin. David said, my sin is always before me. So with brokenness, David gained a consciousness of how serious sin is, how far-reaching sin is. That's not an easy thing to do. We sin and we see the tentacles of it. Wow. That's how that's affected my relationships in this family or my relationships with people at church or this is how far-reaching all of this is. And it's not easy to realize that, but it's good for us because 
it sets up an important barrier in our lives against future sin. Notice also in verse 4, brokenness produces the humility of being able to call sin, sin, even to call it evil. So we live in a culture where people just rename sin. So you've got a gay lifestyle instead of sexual immorality. You've got people living together instead of fornicating. And, and so uh, adultery becomes an affair. You know, all these names, we just put these more socially acceptable names on because we try to remove a stigma of shame related to, uh, to sin. But when a person is really, truly broken, they won't make any excuses for their sin. They won't re rename it. There won't be yabada, 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 do related to that. They will, when they're confronted with it, they will call it what it is. What I did was sin, and what I did was evil. Notice also in verse 4 that brokenness produces a concern for God's reputation and a godly sorrow over what my actions have done to his reputation. In verse 4, God, the psalmist David, he uses the word you or your, some reference to God five times in the verse. So with brokenness, when I sin, my greatest concern is not, oh no, what's going to happen to me? Or, oh no, what are the consequences of this that I'm going to have to bear? With brokenness, the greatest concern is, what have I done to the reputation of God here? And Lord, help me to deal with that first and foremost, and then walk out of my personal consequences in, in a, a, a second way. Notice also in verse 4, when I'm broken, I'll take responsibility for my sin. I'm not going to blame God for my wrongdoing. David said that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Sometimes people, they do wrong and then they want to blame God. There's a certain kind of person that does that. How did you, why did you ever let me see Bathsheba bathing naked? I mean, couldn't there have been like a, a thunderstorm or a cold freeze or something where she would have bathed inside? God, you have control over all of those things. He doesn't do that kind of thing. He just said, Lord, I'm responsible for what happened here and all of this. I don't blame you at all for the failure, uh, my failure in life. So David recognized that God had been just and blameless in all of it, took full responsibility for his own failures. Then in verse 5, brokenness produces a healthy and a needed disgust with my flesh. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So he's not saying, my mother made me do it. What a gene pool, I'm telling you. Adam and Eve, and then you thought it was bad. You should meet my mother and father. So he's not blaming, all right, I came from my mom and this is what I am and I'm a victim of the gene pool and the whole thing. That's not what he's doing. He's, what he's doing here is he's confessing a disgust with his flesh. He looks at what he did and he says, I'm disgusted that I was capable of doing this, that I was capable of this kind of evil apart from you, Lord. And the Apostle Paul, New Testament equivalent of it is in Romans chapter 7, where he said, I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I'm disgusted by my flesh, my old Adam nature. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
And he just looked at his, his life and he was just disgusted with his flesh. I, I trust that you're like me. You're disgusted with the capacities and the, the appetites of the, of the flesh. And he, and he was, and brokenness produced that in him. And it was a good part of keeping a life holy. And then in verse 6, brokenness brings us back to a life of truth in the deepest parts of our life. He said, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. So David, for a year, gave the outward appearance of intimacy with God. Oh, praise the Lord, yes. Oh, isn't he amazing? Yes, that whole thing. He gave the outward appearance of a deep, intimate relationship with God when inwardly he had nothing of the sort. And with brokenness and humility, a confession of sin, then now instead of all of the unbelievable resources that are required to bluff through life when what I'm presenting outwardly is not an inward reality. That's a full-time job, folks. And then with brokenness, what he was outwardly now was what he was inwardly, and, and it produced that consistency uh, in, in his life. So his relationship with God wasn't one of pretense. It wasn't just outward, but it was inward as well. And that's a mark of, of brokenness. No inconsistency between how I'm presenting myself and how I actually am inwardly. He tells us in verse 6 that brokenness makes the Word of God alive in our life. Uh, once again, he said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. There's a bro with brokenness comes a fresh appreciation for the Word of God. Sometimes we can, become, we're so, we can become so rich related to the Word of God. Here's the Bible on our lap. Anytime we can read it and all this. And, and sometimes a person can, can become indifferent to the Word of God, just kind of become cold to the Word of God. You come to church and you think, man, we've got to get a new preacher or something. I mean, that just he's not doing anything for me anymore. And we think, you know, so they've got to stop preaching this and they've got to start doing something like this. This is the way and everything. And we think that something's wrong with the Word of God. And then, boom, we fall flat on our face. We get humbled and we get broken. And isn't it amazing how the Word of God just explodes to life once again? And it comes with brokenness. When that Word of God ceases to be alive to us, it's really good to look whether there's a brokenness in our life anymore concerning, uh, concerning the Word. It's a mark of brokenness. And then brokenness brings a return, he says in verse 8, to joy and to gladness. He said, make me to hear joy and gladness. So that, those things hadn't been a part of his life for a long time. Joy and gladness. You can't have a joy-filled life or a glad life when you're trying to appear one thing outwardly and another thing. You know you're something else inwardly, and, and sometimes we get broken, and sometimes people say, it was the best thing that happened to me. Joy returned to my life. Gladness returned to my life. I was dying doing this hypocritical thing and all, and it, it's, it, it's just that uh, the joy and gladness of being right with God and knowing that I'm right with God, and brokenness brings us back to it. And then in verse 9, brokenness brings a sanctified shame related to my sin. He said, hide your face from my sins and blot out 
all of my iniquities. This isn't condemnation, but it's that healthy kind of, Lord, I never want to be in this place again. God, I never want to be this person again. I don't want to be known for this sin. I don't want to be dominated by this sin. And it's a good thing because it sets up another important barrier in our lives against future sin. And then in verse 10, brokenness produces a longing for a new heart and a steadfast spirit. So basically he's saying, Lord, make my heart, make my spirit into something entirely different than it was at the time of the sin. Again, I never want to be that person again. I never want to be in this place again. You transform me into another person so I am not that person ever again. And it's brokenness that brings that kind of longing to our lives. Verse 11, the brokenness produces a fresh appreciation for the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And as he says, do not cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. David realized no sin is worth grieving the Holy Spirit and, and having the fullness of the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives and brokenness brought him back to that, that realization of how precious the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to our lives. And then in verse 12, brokenness brings fresh appreciation for my salvation. And, and so it brought, back, uh, brought the joy of his salvation back to David. David hadn't lost his salvation, but he had lost the joy of his salvation, and brokenness brought it back. We can lose the awe of our salvation, and brokenness brings back that awe in our lives, and surely a day is less than it should be that does not include a celebration of some kind over our salvation, and brokenness keeps that celebration in our heart all of the time. And then there, in verse 13, brokenness brings fresh appreciation for the privilege of service. He said, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And so here is this uh, fresh appreciation for the privilege of being able to serve the Lord and to serve other people no matter who they might be. You know, candidly, some people are very easy to serve, and then other people are kind of hard to serve. Nobody in this church, I'm not talking about anybody here, but over at Big Valley, <laughs> just kidding, of course. And sometimes we're in Christian service, and it begins to become a grind, and it begins to become difficult, and here's this person, and this, I've got to deal with this related to them and all, and we think that the solution of the return to joy to our Christian service is that God will get that person to shape up. Then God, what he does is he allows some circumstance in our life that just breaks us and humbles us and makes us marvel at the fact that he uses us at all and gives us the opportunity, and we're eager to serve anyone that is in need of any kind of help, and brokenness produces that in us. And then brokenness, verse 13, it brings a concern for the loss, the souls of of men and women. In other words, it caused David to reassess his life, how he was spending his life, and to make sure that some part of his life was being directed toward those that didn't know the Lord and, and to focus his time on making sure that they did know the Lord and, and to be about spiritual things. 
And then with brokenness, we're told in verse 14 and 15, there'll be a return of praise and worship in my life. Sometimes praise and worship in a church can, people can become a little bit numb to it. Um, not here, but other places. And they'll think, boy, oh boy, we got to get another worship team, or boy, there's some, and we think everything's wrong with everybody else. And then again, uh, we stumble and we fall and we fail and, and we're broken and we come into the church service the next week, week and we're singing these songs at the top of our lungs in praise of God's grace and how good he is and all of these things. And we say, what happened to him? It's the same old worship team, many of the same songs. What happened was that they became broken in their life and that brokenness produces a, a return of praise and worship in our lives. And so those are the blessings of brokenness. And he closed there in verses 18 and 19 with a prayer for Jerusalem, just basically saying, Lord, if my sin has had an adverse effect concerning the things of you among your people in the city, and of course his sin was well known by that time, he said, Lord, I hope that you would limit the damage of that and that you would bless Jerusalem and make sure that my sin is not a stumbling block to anyone else. And the fact of the matter is, is that we really are broken into life. I don't know how many people anymore for whom brokenness is a concern or a goal because it's getting lost. Again, in all this I, me, my Christianity, nobody's interested in dying or being broken. And what is brokenness? Brokenness is my will being broken to God's will. And I know what the greatest example of it is in the whole Bible. Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Cried out to the Father concerning the coming cross. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. That's brokenness. And this whole focus on church being about us, about, you know, the focus on us rather than God and upon losing our life for the sake of God's call upon our life and the sake of reaching other people and serving other people. That's where life is found in loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. And you add this whole thing and now I'm going to get into self-love now in a Christian environment and you'll never have time to do the first two commandments because you're doing what wasn't a commandment at all to begin with. And so brokenness steers us clear of all of that. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, it's always good to have some time to just sit and just freshly reassess our surrender to God. Lord, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. It's okay to pray that, but you also have to couple with that. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. A surrendering of my will to his will and to his purposes. It is to be like Christ, and no one can be like Christ who does not have brokenness of that attitude in their life. So as the elements are going to be passed in just a moment, you hold on to it, and we'll pray together and we'll partake together. But let's spend some time just sitting before the Lord and just freshly considering our current surrender to the Lord this evening and make